Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Tom Palmer, and it's my signal pleasure and my honor to welcome you to the second Cato University program of 2018, Cato University's College of History and Philosophy. Now, Cato University is in my portfolio at the Cato Institute, where I'm currently a senior fellow, and I'm also executive vice president for international programs at the Atlas Network in which capacity I work with uh, hundreds of think tanks like Cato around the world. So I tell people I used to be 100% working at the Cato Institute, and we shifted a lot of programs over to Atlas, and now I'm 90% at Atlas and 60% at Cato. <laughs> so it's really nice to see uh, faces of some longtime friends. I learned years ago not to say old friends, uh, but also lots of new faces as well, and people I hope will be friends uh, by the end of this program. Now, I thought it's appropriate to give a background uh, about the Cato Institute for some of you for whom that may be new. Cato set up its activities in 1977. So that's when your grandparents met. In the glorious city of San Francisco and then moved to Washington, D.C. in 1981. And Ed Crane, the president at the time, did point out that from satellite photos, you could see his fingernail marks dragged all across the United States uh, as a result of moving from San Francisco to DC. Now the mission of the Cato Institute as adopted by the board of directors is very clear. To originate, disseminate, and increase understanding of public policies based on the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Our vision is to create free, open, and civil societies based on libertarian principles. Now those principles used to be called liberal, and indeed in much of the world they still are. Uh, the economist Joseph Schumpeter once noted about the United States, his adopted country, as a supreme if unintended complement, the enemies of private enterprise have thought it wise to appropriate its label. So if I sometimes lapse and speak of liberal policies in the course of this a program, please forgive me and remember that I'm using the term in its classical sense and the way it's used in most other countries around the world, uh, but in the US to avoid that confusion, we often use the word libertarian. Now, the Cato Institute is organized as a public policy research institute under the rules of section 501C3 of the United States Federal Tax Code, one of the most complex products of the human mind uh, meaning that someone who invests in our work is able to deduct the amount of the donation from his or her taxable income. So if you're taxed at a 24% rate, you donate $100, you take $100 off of your taxable income, save $24, so the cost of your $100 donation to you is $76. Now the reason I mention that is I sometimes speak at the university audiences and the professors stand up and tell me that people donate to the Cato Institute because they get money from doing so. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Uh, but anyone who wants to try is invited to talk to me afterward. Uh, our financial support is 100% voluntary. We receive no governmental funds, uh, not from the United States government nor from any other government around the world. And we're very careful to keep that firewall intact. The great bulk, Roughly 80% of our revenue comes from individual donors. 
so numerically and materially individu individuated human persons who write checks that draw on their hard-earned income to support our work. We get a smaller percentage from foundations, which is about 15%, and about 1% from corporations, which is why we're often referred to as the corporate-backed Cato Institute. Uh, <laughs> And about 4% of our income comes from sale of books, registration fees for conferences, and other program income. We rely on the support of uh, some over 15,000 current sponsors, uh, mainly but not exclusively in the United States, who make donations annually as an expression of their commitments to uh, individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, rule of law, freedom of trade, and peace. Now, most of the work that the Cato Institute does, the great bulk of it, is focused on particular issues of policy and proposing improvements in taxes, spending, regulation, foreign and military policy, criminal justice, war on drugs, freedom of speech, property rights protection, health care policy, on and on and on. Now, unlike some other think tanks in that space of think tanks, uh, we do not claim not to have an agenda. Some years ago, I spoke in Washington, D.C., before all of the Fulbright scholars who'd come to the United States uh, to do research, and there was a, a vice president from another friendly think tank in Washington, and uh, that person stood up and said, unlike the Cato Institute, we at the <clears throat> Institute do not have an agenda. And I laughed. Uh, because the only person really fooled was the person who said it. Everybody has an agenda. Just the questions that you ask tells me a lot about your agenda. So I'll give you a simple example. Here's the question that we ask in Washington all the time, and it's considered rude. It's an unpleasant question. There's usually an awkward silence, whether it's at a cocktail party or a congressional hearing. And the question goes as follows. Where in the United States Constitution is the power proposed in this legislation or regulation authorized? And it's a very unpopular question. There's a lot of <clears throat> throats cleared and eyes rolled. Uh, but we've asked it for over 40 years, and we will continue to do so. It tells you something about our agenda. We believe in the rule of law and the principles of constitutional limitations on government, in the presumption of liberty and not the presumption of power. When newspapers print headlines such as, this is one of my favorites from years ago, Senate fails to pass worker protections, it says something about their agenda as well. They consider that a failure rather than Senate succeeds in defeating costly, onerous uh, legislation that would lead to unemployment. So we believe that it's better to be upfront and honest about our values and our principles and not to smuggle them in. So our mission states that we advance the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. And we believe we do a better job of that when we state our principles upfront. It helps us to be more attentive to the virtues of intellectual excellence, to accuracy, objectivity, and fairness. Our principles are clear, and we lay them out for everyone to see. And now we have to do the hard work of making sure that we are accurate, objective, and fair. The principles are not smuggled in. We acknowledge and defend them. But we want to make sure 
that the research, the outcome, the facts are not dictated by the conclusions someone wants to reach. The standards for studies from the Cato Institute require that the numbers and facts and citations be checked and rechecked, that the work is in pursuit of the public interest and not some narrow, special, or partial interest, and that the arguments and the evidence for competing proposals be met in their strongest and not their weakest forms. Setting up straw men and then knocking them down is not a worthy or even very successful way to advance the principles of, of liberty. So when we publish a study, we invite the smartest people who disagree to come and criticize it. And that's very important to us. Because if it can't stand up to that, it doesn't meet our standards. So we want to have smart people, whether they call themselves on the left or the right or the up or the down, people who disagree to come and explain why they think it's wrong. But we're not just about applied public policy analysis. We do work in the courts. Uh, it's a very important part of Cato's work. Uh, our, our legal team working in the front of the court's briefs. Uh, everything that we do, whether it's before the courts or the legislature or in public opinion, derives from our basic principles. And we defend them directly. And Cato University is one of the vehicles for the propagation of those foundational ideas. We started running these seminars in 1978. They were called uh, Cato Seminars in Political Economy. And I attended the first one that year. I think it was at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. But then Cato began to focus much more on public policy. Uh, they stopped putting them on. When I came back and started working at Cato in the mid-1990s, when I came back from England, uh, we relaunched it in 1997 under the brand name of Cato University. Now, last year, we shifted from what we had done for years, which was a week-long program, into three long weekends. You're at the College of History and Philosophy. In March of this year, we held the, law, the College of, Hist of uh, Law and the Constitution in New Orleans. And in October, we'll have the College of Economics in Boston. In 2019, we're going to go back to the one-week program, uh, and that'll be held in our headquarters in Washington, D.C., which is a authentically fabulous temple of liberty and learning. <clears throat> now, since this is the College of History and Philosophy, I want to start the substantive discussion with some thoughts about our two disciplines and why uh, we brought them together. Philosophy comes from the Greek for the love of wisdom, and history from the Greek for inquiries. The Greek writer Herodotus called his book his historia, that is to say, his inquiries. But those two words have long histories, so to say, and they've come to refer to something rather more limited than loving wisdom or inquiring. History is made of inquiries about what happened and why. That is to say, it's about the past. Philosophy used to mean thinking seriously about anything. Recall that what we call today science used to be called natural philosophy, was the term for what we would today call science or physics. Philosophy has come in the last few centuries to be used not as the activity that is modified by specifying some particular topic of philosophizing, such as falling bodies or animals or the weather or human activities, but rather as the more general activity of what is necessary for those things to be or withdrawing conclusions beyond factual description, notably about knowledge, morality, art, thought, and consciousness. 
as well about, as about the nature and foundations of all the other disciplines. So philosophy of science and philosophy of history and so on. Now the Athenian historian Thucydides saw these activities somehow as linked. He's often cited, although the text cannot be found in any of his extant writings, it's always attributed to him, but we can't find it in something he wrote, that history is philosophy teaching by examples. Now philosophy isn't merely, as some of us uh, might believe, some activity limited to sitting in a chair and just thinking, thinking pure thoughts, that that's what it is to philosophize. Uh, because we need something about which to think. And for much of what interests us, and especially what interests us at the Cato Institute, that's provided by history, by what happened and why. Now, of course, for many of us, certainly for me, history is enjoyable just for its own sake. It's pleasurable and delightful to read and think about the past, to visit the Acropolis of Athens and the Forum of Rome and the Great Wall of China and Independence Hall and to imagine what they were like when they were new. It's not so fun to memorize long lists of Roman emperors or English kings and queens or American presidents, but it's certainly enjoyable to see in the mind's eye the human dramas that unfolded in the past that made the world in which we live. It's also enjoyable, and beyond that, very helpful to speculate about historical what-ifs. What if at the Battle of Pharsalus, Pompey, in command of the Republican army, had followed his own course and had delayed the attack on Caesar's legions, thereby starving Caesar out and winning the battle for the Republic. What would have happened had that different decision been made? What if George Washington had agreed to become king? What if the United States had stayed out of World War I? Now, speculation like that can help us to understand what we should advocate and promote at present. Having some understanding of how pivotal changes worked out in the past, whether for good or for ill, how people were surprised by unintended consequences of grand plans can help us to avoid mistakes like that in the future. Now, those are all good reasons to study history, to learn from historians, to think seriously and systematically about the past. But I'd like to author two, offer two other reasons that are complementary to those. The first has to do with the various ways we might understand the institutions and practices, customs and ideas that shape our lives and those of people around us. We can understand institutions by economic reasoning. We can see why people do what they do because of the incentives and the constraints that they face. We can understand ideas by means of their logical connections with other ideas or their role in wider systems of beliefs. We can understand practices by means of psychological and sociological investigation into common patterns of human behavior with even the possibility of connecting them to the structures of our brains as contemporary neuroscience and empirical psychology are attempting. Those are all lenses, if you will, that we can use to peer into the inner working of things, to understand how the world of human interaction functions. History is another one, and done better when informed by those disciplines and others. So when we see the antecedent conditions for something, it helps us to understand that. There's a lot of path dependency and human actions. We made this choice, which means some other choices are not available or open to us. 
But there's also a deeper reason still. Ideas, government, social roles, and the like are, to use a currently popular term, social constructs. Now, there's been a trend for, oh, about 50 years uh, in postmodern popular social analysis to call everything a social construct, whatever it is. That's just a social construct. And reasonable people recoil uh, from this practice. But we shouldn't always recoil, in my opinion. Take the case of gender roles, for example. They do differ widely among societies. In some, women work at home and men go into the labor place. And in others, women go to the fields and the markets and men drink tea and gossip all day. In Guatemala, for centuries, weaving was considered women's work. Men would not do that. But now that there's a global market for Guatemalan textiles, more and more men are going into what was traditionally considered women's work. These gender roles aren't just posited by nature. They're not read off of the mind of God. The mistake of the extreme postmodernists is to assume that because something could be other than it is, that everything could be any way we want it to be. And it's all just an expression of an exertion of will. And that's nonsense. And indeed, it's very dangerous nonsense. Just because there's a range of expressions of human nature doesn't mean that there's no underlying nature at all. And the world can be just anything we want it to be, anything that we will. There is a natural law. To take a simple example of the natural law, if you print lots and lots and lots of paper money, prices will rise relative to what they would have been in the absence of that increase in the money supply. It was true in Hungary. I have a one billion pengo note. Uh, it was true in Germany. I have a 500 trillion mark note. It was true in China and Argentina and Zimbabwe, and it's true in Venezuela. It's true everywhere. And if you then apply price controls, or as the French called them, the law of the maximum, you will get shortages. This is not just a social construct. It's invariant to what language people speak, or what religion they profess, or what ideology their rulers espouse. Inflation and the destruction of a monetary system is not just a matter of a social construct that we could will to be somehow differently. Now still, we shouldn't show, throw out the insight of social constructivism with the dirty bathwater of extreme postmodern relativism and polylogism and the rejection of universal principles, objective reality, and truth, because practical uh, practices, languages, words, phrases, institutions, and ideas are still human responses to problems that our ancestors faced. They tried to solve problems. They're tools, mental tools, if you want to think of it, ways to solve problems that we face. And understanding the problems that they face will help us to understand those institutions, what function they serve, what harm they may be causing, and in what ways they might be profitably reformed. Now, I don't consider myself a political conservative, <clears throat> but I do recognize the wisdom of a certain kind of conservative attitude. And I think it's become more important in recent years and that is that we don't demand that institutions or practices and habits justify themselves before the bar of our reason, as socialists do, 
nor do we demand that they be expressions of the will of the people, as populists do, whether we call them left-wing or right-wing populists, and then abolish them if they are considered somehow not the will of the people or not justifiable by reason. It's the height of foolishness to save a practice, justify yourself or we will abolish you. <clears throat> With no appreciation of how practices and policies and institutions have, might have emerged over time to solve problems of which we happen to be unaware. It's like a brain surgeon poking around in your skull and saying, oh, what does this do? I don't know, let's cut it out. <laughs> and demanding that all institutions be justified before the bar of reason in that way would be no less destructive. In addition, when we see liberty, which is our focus, as a historical product, and moreover as ours, as our inheritance, that has many, many advantages. Edmund Burke noted in his Reflections on the Revolution in France, the importance of an inheritance of liberty. He referred to the benefits, and no small benefits, quote, from considering our liberties in the light of an inheritance, acting always as if in the presence of canonized forefathers, the spirit of freedom, leading itself to misrule and excess, is tempered with an awful gravity. The idea of a liberal descent inspires us with a sense of habitual native dignity, which prevents that upstart insolence from habitually adhering to and disgracing those who are the first acquirers of any distinction. By this means, our liberty becomes a noble pedigree. It's ours. But there's yet another note of caution is in order here. A purely uncritical reverence for the inheritance of the past, which I very quickly add, Burke did not maintain. Most conservatives I've met who quote Burke don't get him. They think he was a reactionary, and he definitely was not. He did not have an uncritical attitude. He did want reformation. He did believe in what he called a rational liberty for the French. But having that reactionary attitude, which is often confused with Burke, is as foolish as demanding that everything be rationally justified on pain of abolition. F.A. Hayek put it very neatly in the epilogue to the Constitution of Liberty, called Why I'm Not a Conservative. He said there's one respect however, in which there is justification for saying that the liberal, he means the classical liberal here, occupies a position midway between the socialist and the conservative. He is as far from the crude rationalism of the socialist who wants to reconstruct all social institutions according to a pattern prescribed by his individual reason as from the mysticism to which the conservative so frequently has to resort. What I have described as the liberal position, quoting Hayek again, shares with conservatism a distrust of reason to the extent that the liberal is very much aware that we do not know all the answers and that he is not sure that the answers he has are certainly the right ones or even that we can find all the answers. He also does not disdain to seek assistance from whatever non-rational institutions or habits have proved their worth. So Hayek differed from the reactionary or the conservative in that sense, not accepting whatever existed just because it existed and then surrounding it with some superstitious reverence, even when an inherited practice can be shown to be harmful. In the 1950s, he wrote, 
quote, where private practices cannot affect anybody but the voluntary adult actors, the mere dislike of what is being done by others or even the knowledge that others harm themselves by what they do provides no legitimate ground for coercion. And he went on to advocate repealing laws against homosexuality. Indeed, in this regard, uh, he was following Burke, who did the same thing when he was in the English Parliament and caused uh, a bit of a scandal because he said, why are we punishing these people? They haven't hurt anybody. So knowing how institutions arose can protect us from foolish attempts to tear them down and replace them with institutions that will be inferior in practice, as the history of utopian totalitarian regimes shows with such stark clarity. But also, uh, more recent interventions into financial markets, uh, for example, uh, demonstrates uh, to those who can trace out the incentives and the impact of distorting them, the wisdom of not screwing up things you don't understand, which is something politicians find very difficult to avoid doing. So when we understand the histories of institutions and practices, whether it's banking or judicial review or property rights and water, we gain a better understanding of how they emerged and whether they merit abolition or reform, or retention instead. So that rather liberal approach to history, or as Hayek put it, a very critical form of rationalism, enables us to examine practices and to determine that they should not be continued, that they should be eliminated, that they should be abolished, or that they should be preserved. In some cases, even because we don't understand them and their origins well enough, but there's no strong enough reason to get rid of them. So that's an important reason to understand why the study of history matters. But there's another reason, and this one is a bit old-fashioned in an age when people reject uh, grand narratives, and that is the moral function of history. History has not only an explanatory function, but a very deep and powerful moral function as well. The Roman historian Tacitus in the Annals wrote, my purpose is not to relate at length every motion, but only such as were infamous, or were, excuse me, conspicuous for excellence or notorious for infamy. This I regard as history's highest function, to let no worthy action be uncommemorated and to hold out the reprobation of posterity as a terror to evil words and deeds. Tacitus wanted the great deeds of the past to be remembered. We should remember the bravery of those who sheltered and protected Jews in the darkest days of European history, who stood up in this country against Jim Crow laws and stood against the abuse of people because of their skin color, who fought for freedom of trade and for free enterprise, who stood for the rule of law, even against the most powerful and the strongest winds of populism. Now, Tacitus continued the passage of the Annals with words that may be relevant to contemporary politics. He said, so corrupted indeed and debased was that age by sycophancy that not only the foremost citizens who were forced to save their grandeur by servility, but every ex-consul, most of the ex-praetors, and a host of inferior senators would rise in eager rivalry to propose shameful and preposterous motions. Tradition says that Tiberius, as often as he left the Senate House, used to exclaim in Greek, how ready these men are to be slaves. Clearly, even he, with his dislike of public freedom, was disgusted at the abject abasement of his creatures. We should also remember 
those who undermined our liberty, who used the state to rob their fellows and take from their mouths the bread that they had earned, who threw away the protections of the law for some short-term gain, or who created or are creating systems of tyrannical control, often in the name of securing us against some minor threats, even some of them of their own manufacture. So I believe it's important to restore that moral function of history to its rightful place. It informs us of right and wrong, the consequences of bad and good actions and practices, and it inspires us to emulate those who stood up for freedom and to avoid the shame, Tacitus's reprobation of posterity, of capitulation to wickedness and corruption. Now, finally, a note on the philosophy of history. And I considered most self-styled philosophies of history to be utter bunk, rubbish, and nonsense. Uh, perhaps in an attempt to wean his students of grand philosophies of history based on these necessary trajectories, it had to happen this way. It was the voice of reason and history and so on. The great English historian of law, Sir Thomas Plucknett, author of the gigantic Concise History of the Common Law, uh, would open his first-year lectures on the history of the common law quite remarkably, every year the same. It was told to me by one of his great students, Professor Harold Berman, uh, who's a great legal historian. Plucknett would, in a dignified way, ascend to the podium, look out over the fresh faces of his first-year students, and then declare, in the history of the English common law, first one thing happened, and then another. But history doesn't have to be just one damn thing after another, which is what Plucknett was trying to knock out these grand narratives out of his student's head. But it's closer than the fantasies of those who believe they've gotten it, that they understand the secret of history. Now, you can think philosophically about history. Sure, that's important and necessary. But we should remember the disasters of the philosophies of history traced by, for example, Hegel in his philosophy of right, in one of his more understandable passages, he said, history is mind clothing itself with the form of events or the immediate actuality of nature. History is the process whereby the spirit discovers itself and its own concept, blah, 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 blah. Now Friedrich Engels and Karl Marx adopted his approach, claimed to invert it, but they were in favor of dialectical materialism, mixed in some confusing and garbled classical economics, and then claimed that they had a philosophy that predicted the necessity of the triumph of their ideology. And that didn't turn out so well. Now, it's not that there's no such thing as progress. We have seen so much, but we need to be careful when we think about what progress is. We can't know the future in the same way that we can know the present or the past. Karl Popper, the philosopher of science, uh, very neatly put it, he said, if you really think you can predict your future knowledge, you already know it. It doesn't make any sense to claim you can predict the knowledge that you will have in the future. There really is discovery and novelty in store for us. My colleague David Bowes at Cato says, one of the reasons he wants to live a long, long time is because he wants to see what's going to happen. What, what cool things will be invented and what things will be discovered? He wants to see how it's all going to turn out. 
The British historian J.B. Burry distinguished two kinds of progress or ideas of progress. He said there are two distinct types corresponding to two radically opposed political theories and two antagonistic temperaments. The one was the constructive idealists and socialists who could name all the streets and towers of the city of gold, which they imagine is situated just around the corner. The development of man is a closed system. Its term is known and is within reach. The other type is that of those who, surveying the gradual ascent of man, believe that by the same interplay of forces which have conducted him so far, and by a further development of the liberty which he has fought to win, he will move slowly toward conditions of increasing harmony and happiness. Here the development is indefinite. Its term is unknown, and it lies in the remote future. Individual liberty is the motive force, and the corresponding political theory is liberalism. Whereas the first doctrine naturally leads to a symmetrical system in which the authority of the state is preponderant, and the individual is little more value than a cog in a well-oiled uh, wheel, his place is assigned. It is not his right to go his own way. So liberals believe in indefinite progress. We can't predict what's going to happen in the future. But we have a pretty strong, solid understanding that if you get the institutions right, property, rule of law, markets, limited government, the presumption of freedom, things will get better, but in ways we could not today predict. And finally, there's that silly idea that pops up all the time. History is about leading up to the present, and it's important only insofar as it has contributed to the present. And moreover, the precursors of the present can only be understood in terms of the present. That's called presentism, and it should be guarded against. It's a very easy mistake to make. We lapse into it regularly. History involves the selection of evidence and the creation of narratives and patterns that certainly read as much into as off of the evidence that's available to us. And it carries a sense of inevitability. It had to turn out that way. But in fact, the past is full of accidents, things that could have been otherwise, small developments that made the modern world what it was, what it is today. About 20 years ago, I went to a symposium uh, very interesting, where we read texts from Aristotle, we read uh, the Nicomachean Ethics and the Politics, and a number of texts from the Confucian tradition in China. We wanted to examine and contrast theories, understandings of virtue in these two great uh, traditions. At the end of it, of a couple of days, one participant leaned back and he said, now I understand. What's the difference between the West and China? He said, when you start with Aristotle, you get the American Revolution, the Constitution, the Industrial Revolution, and the abolition of slavery. And when you start with Confucius, you get Mao Zedong and the Cultural Revolution. That's unbelievable. He thought you could trace all of history from just one book. It just was all inevitable from some particular book. That was the only thing that happened. This is a, it's not a mistake. He was an intellectual historian, actually. Uh, and I reminded him, I did not say what I was tempted to say, that is the dumbest thing I've heard in a long time. I said, you know, something happened on April 11 of the year 1241. Uh, and it was really important for the future of Europe and Asia. The Mongol armies 
had just totally annihilated the Hungarian army at the Battle of the Tisza River. Mongol scouts made it all the way to the Atlantic and came back. They went all the way to Normandy, had some nice crepes suzettes and espresso, <laughs> and came back and said, these people do, do not know what is about to hit them. But on 1242, on December 11th, excuse me, December 11th, 1241, something happened. The great Khan, the leader of all the Mongol armies, died. And all of the Khans returned to Karakoram to elect another Khan of Khans. And they never returned to Europe. Instead, they invaded Baghdad. On February 10th, 1258, under Hulagu Khan, they totally destroyed the city. They entered on February 13. And for one week, 24 hours a day, they massacred every living being in the city. Had roughly one million people. And they destroyed the greatest library in the world at that, that, that time, the House of Wisdom, as it was known. Survivors said that the river ran green because the ink that they used in the books was green. And the Mongol armies threw all the books into the river and dissolved the ink off of them. Now, had Ogadai not died on that night in December of 1241, but instead it continued into Europe, the history of Europe and of China, which was later overrun by Mongol armies, would have been entirely different. And that was just an accident. He was evidently poisoned by one of his wives over the question of which son would get the, the primary inheritance. So that was not necessary or the philosophy of history working out. It was an accident. And history is full of those things. Something could have been otherwise. This happened, and other things happened after that. But enough of philosophizing. I want to conclude by quoting Patrick Henry, who explained in his very famous Give Me Liberty speech of March 23, 1775, uh, from the pulpit of St. John's Church in Richmond, Virginia, I have but one lamp by which my feet are guided, and that is the lamp of experience. I know of no way of judging the future, but by the past. And I think that's a darn good reason to want to study uh, history uh, for participants at a Cato Institute event. Now, I've talked a little bit about the importance of the rule of law, and that leads me to rules, which help us to coordinate our behavior, and live together harmoniously, and work uh, profitably. So here are some of the rules for Cato University. Number one, I encourage people, please wear your name tags. And I'll, I'll admit, one of the reasons is, <clears throat> I've heard it said, as one gets older, you can't remember names. And having it right there, even for someone you've met before, is really helpful. So it helps to make friends and make the situation more enjoyable for everyone. Here's what I do. This is what I've learned from experience. When I get back to my hotel room, I take off the name tag and I put it on the floor, right in front of the door, with my room key because I know I will forget where they are when I wake up in the morning in my pre-caffeinated state. So when I leave, there's my key and my name tag, and I get to uh, uh, make sure that I don't leave them behind. The breakfast and meals are all going to be uh, right in here, and uh, we will be having breakfast tomorrow on the patio right out there at 8 a.m., where we had the reception. The session will begin 
uh, precisely at 9 o'clock. And this is something I encourage people to do. Uh, I believe in setting our watches to the correct time zone. And that time zone is Swiss time. So not California laid back hippie time, uh, but Swiss time. And I want to explain anyone, there's someone here from Switzerland. Where? Okay. Um, I'll talk a little bit about Switzerland tomorrow. It's a great example of uh, liberty. Uh, but tell me, is this just true or not? Swiss people consider Germans to be lazy and indolent. <laughs> Essentially correct. Uh, so and I, when I was in Switzerland, I had to explain to people, I said, when the train says it leaves at 3.42, it means it's 3.41. It's 3.42, and the train is in motion not 3.42 and a quarter or 3.43. So what I like to have happen is at 9 o'clock, someone will be standing up here. That person's mouth will open and sounds will come out at 9 o'clock. But then we end on time. So if it says we end at 10.30, 10.15, whatever it is on the schedule, it will end at that time. So we have the correct time uh, for the breaks. Now, for those who are here on scholarship, uh, we do have some sessions organized. My colleague Neil, right there, that's a very important person. Uh, he's going to be in charge of those. And I'll tell you, one of the reasons that we do that is we also believe in virtues, as I mentioned. One of them is gratitude. And so we do ask the participants to write a letter thanking the people who made possible uh, their scholarship. That's a very important part of life. Uh, and we're also going to have an opportunity for old people to tell you you need to sit up straight, and do things correctly uh, and explain all the screw-ups and mistakes they made in life and how you can avoid them. So I think it will be useful for you. Now, when I mention being on time, I'm going to mention this for the younger people in the audience. I, too, was young once, actually twice, uh, and I remember it was really hard to wake up in the morning. So you have cell phones, set an alarm on them. The hotel can give you a wake-up call. There's an alarm clock in the room, and open the drapes at night so the sun will wake you up. So you have no excuse uh, not to be here on time. Uh, and then finally, it's a great opportunity for all of us, and certainly me included, to learn from each other, to listen, uh, to hear what other people have to say about issues, to think about them, to explain our view, to be willing to change our minds at the same time uh, that we articulate what we think. And that's a very important part of a free society is the willingness to listen to one another. So you've got an opportunity here from some really great uh, teachers, Rob McDonald and Chris Preble and uh, Jacob Levy, whose name I always mispronounce, whether it's Levy or Levy. Will you correct me now in front of everyone? Levy, Levy thank you. Um, I'm always nervous around Jacob. I'm going to get that wrong. Uh, and uh, Jason Kuznicki, who is, whose flight was delayed, but will be here uh, tomorrow. So this is a great opportunity to learn from them, from each other, to make friends. I'll see some of you at the bar this evening. And everyone, 8.55, right on time, ready to start precisely at 9. Thank you very much. <laughs>